My soul in sad exile was out on life's sea, so burdened with sin and distress, till I heard a sweet voice saying, Make me your choice, and I entered the heaven of rest. I yielded myself to his tender embrace, and faith taking hold of the word, my fetters fell off, and I anchored my soul, the heaven of rest is my Lord, I've tempest may sweep o'er the wild stormy deep in Jesus I'm safe evermore the song of my soul since the Lord made me whole has been the old story so Jesus who'll save, whosoever will have a home in the heaven of rest. How precious the thought that we all may recline like John the old loved and blessed. On Jesus' strong arm, where no tempest can harm, secure in the haven of rest. I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I'll sail the wild seas no tempest may sweep o'er the wild stormy deep in Jesus I'm safe evermore oh come to the Savior he patiently waits to save by his power tempest may sweep o'er the wild 
stormy deep. In Jesus I'm safe evermore. Thank you, Brother Vance. As always, you bless us. Amen. If you have your Bible, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Oh, kiddos, second grade and below, I think my wife is out there in the hall waiting for you. If you want to go to Children's Church, there she is, she's at the back door. I guess Josiah's going to be in second grade for today. Go hang out with his mom. I want to say a word real quick, thank our uh, decoration folks, Ms. Rhonda and uh, Brigham were up here this week getting our lilies in shape for Easter season. Boy, it's hard to believe Easter's just a couple of weeks away. So thank you for making our sanctuary so pretty, always. Uh, it's always a joy to come in here and see beautiful flowers and uh, be seasonally right, right? We come in here, there's not poinsettias out, but there are uh, lilies. Appreciate that. First Peter chapter 1. Let me ask you, have you ever needed a word of hope? Things have been bad, things have looked glum, and you just, man, sure need a word of hope. Need something to give me a little just spark of a pick-me-up. Life has got us down sometimes, and we just need, we need something because we're not sure what to do. I think about some of the biblical stories of instances like that. Uh, for instance, like Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. He was a king of Judah some time ago during the time when Isaiah was prophet. In fact, his story is told a, different a couple different places in the Scriptures. Uh, specifically, one of the places, Isaiah uh, chapter 38, don't turn there, uh, but he had become very ill, Hezekiah. Uh, the Bible says actually that he had been mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, get yourself in order, get your house in order, because you're going to die. Hopeless, hopeless. And Hezekiah needed a word of hope, and he began praying and praying and praying. And uh, before long, Isaiah came to him with a word of hope. It says, the Lord has heard your prayer. Uh, and he is going to heal you from this sickness. Wonderful lesson for us in that when we need that word of hope that we turn to the Lord. There's so many things in this world that we can turn to to try to get a false sense of hope. In the end, what we need to do is do as Hezekiah and turn to the Lord. And he will remind us, I believe, of so many of different parts of his scripture, stories like that. And perhaps the scripture we're going to look at today, as Peter gives us, I believe, some words of hope. I titled this, The Word of Hope, because it comes and is born from the Word of God, that is, Jesus Christ. Uh, but really what Peter does is in the scripture we're going to look at, verses 20 through 25 of chapter 1, is he gives us three different words of hope that we get, that we can have when life just, boy, it's gotten us it's gotten us down. Well, let's look at our scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, 
through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we are able to get from it. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us every single day from your word. Father, I pray that you would, through me, impart hope to us. Father, I pray for your spirit to speak freely to us, that you would get me out of the way. God, we come to you not because um, this is some kind of superstitious act that we pray before we preach, but Lord, we literally believe in your power. We literally want your power in our lives. We want your hope in our lives, and we know that there is no other place to find lasting hope except in you. Lord, may we receive this reality in full, may it impact us from this day forward like it's never impacted us before. Father, in your name I pray, Lord, amen. And so from the scripture, I want to give you three words of hope that Peter gives us. The first one is this, Jesus was foreordained. Now, that's not something we normally go around saying, right? I'm a little hopeless. Oh, Jesus was foreordained. That gives me some hope, right? But according to verse 20, my Bible says that he, meaning Jesus Christ, was foreordained. Some of your versions will say foreknown. Some others will state that he was chosen. Whichever you prefer is fine because the emphasis isn't the foreknown or the foreordained or the chosen as much as it is this phrase right here, before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world. You know what the first act of creation was? It wasn't speaking the sun into creation. It wasn't speaking the moon into creation or any of the planets in outer space. It wasn't speaking us into creation. God spoke the world into creation and the foundations of the world. The Bible says that the earth was void and formless, that there was no earth, in other words, and God spoke it into being. And yet what the Scripture says is before that act, before God spoke the world into being, Christ had already been foreordained. For what? For the purpose of our salvation. Understand that when Jesus in the gospel says that he and the Father are one, he's not just making some trite, silly statements. God is Jesus. Jesus is God. They are one. Uh, God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was uh, active in creation. It was by him, for him, through him that all things were created. So Get this picture, if you will, before the foundations of the world were laid, the very one who would speak it into creation had already foreordained this moment in time where he would be made into flesh and come and live and die and be uh, raised to new life for our salvation. The very God who was forming into, into a being out of dirt playing in the mud and forming a human being and was about to breathe life into him, as he was doing it, he already had in his mind this plan of salvation for us. And the implications of this are huge. The implications that Jesus was foreordained before the foundations of the world is huge. Here's implication number one. 
God knew we were going to sin, and yet He created us anyway. That blows my mind. God knew we were going to sin, and yet He created us anyway. And the question I get quite often, and maybe you get it too, is, is something like this. If God we were, knew we were going to sin, why did He create us? And it's usually asked to kind of paint us into a corner uh, about our, our understanding and our belief that God is sovereign, He knows all things, and He is in charge of all things. And it's meant to paint us into a corner like, oh, 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 oh no, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, we're like, oh, gosh, why did He, right? The, the Bible doesn't give us a real clear answer on this, but I've got something I like to speculate. And if you'll allow me to speculate, I, let me just ask. Let me ask this question of all of you that are parents. Before your first child was ever born, or any of your children were born, let me ask you, were any of you disillusioned with the misconception that your children would be absolutely perfect? Any of you? No, right? We knew that this baby being formed in the womb, this baby that we were waiting, before they were even perhaps conceived, we knew this baby's going to mess up. This baby's going to make mistakes. This baby's going to break my heart. I remember being 12 years old and telling my grandmother, Grandma, I don't think I want to ever have kids. Well, why, grandson? That's what she called, called me. Why? Because kids just mess up. I know I am one. We know it. And yet we have them anyway. Would we change our minds knowing that they're going to mess up? Absolutely not. In fact, we know that from the moment they're conceived, even before they're conceived, we know that Children are going to cause us all kinds of physical, mental, and emotional pain because we are, we are tied to them in a special, special way like we are tied to nobody else. We hurt like we never hurt before when our kids are hurt, are being hurt, or are hurting us. I can remember a time not too long ago, about four years ago, we were in Houston, a little family trip. We had gone to the zoo. We went to Popeye's Chicken to get some Popeye uh, chicken, get some fried chicken. I was taking Josiah to the bathroom. He got his pinky finger caught in the door. And I saw it. And the one who slammed the door back open so he could get it out. And that sucker was just hanging on by just a thread of skin. We had to rush him to the hospital. And I tell you, I was hurting so bad. Nothing happened physically to me. My baby was hurt. When our babies are hurt, we just hurt with them. Why? Because we're interwoven with them. We're tied with them like we're tied to nobody else. And yet knowing that, knowing that we're tied to them, knowing how they would hurt, knowing how they'll hurt us, would any of us choose to go back in time and not have those children? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. Well, why? Here's my thought. It's because in some way we loved our children and we were knit to them before they were even conceived, conceived, formed, or born. And if, if we, who are fleshly, sinful creatures, are able to feel that way about our earthly children, can't a holy and nothing but loving God feel the same way about us? Even knowing we would sin, He said, I will call them into creation anyway. Knowing they will sin, by the way, I've got a plan. I'm going to come, be made into flesh, and die on the cross for them someday. 
This obviously, by the way, is another very strong argument, argument against abortion, just to take a little side note there. This understanding that God has already tied to us before we were even created, knitted to us like nothing else. Oh, how cruel abortion is in that way. Here's another important implication of this reality that Jesus was foreordained before the foundations of the world. Jesus was not plan B. He was not the second option. He was not God's backup plan. He was not DEFCON 4, all hands on deck, emergency intervention plan. Jesus was the plan from the get-go. He was the plan all along. That's important. That gives me some hope. You know why? Because when I mess up, I didn't mess up God's plan. When I sinned, I didn't just throw the whole world into turmoil. God already had a plan for it. And it was Jesus. And he wasn't plan B. He was plan A. He was the plan from the very beginning. And the final implication is that he was foreordained for you. That's what the scripture says. He was foreordained for you, for me, for us. And we need to be sure that we do not gloss over that very personal word, but instead we personalize this reality that in every, you know, in every version of the English Bible, this word, you know, sometimes the English Bibles, they, 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 they're a little bit different, right? Your King James Version is different from my New King James Version. Your English Standard Version is different from your uh, New Living Translation and so on and so forth. There's, a, there's some differences in there. But this word you is in every single one of these. Why? Because we need to personalize this plan that was foreordained before the foundations of the world that Jesus would come for you, you, and me, for us. I like what the English Standard Version says, so it says, for the sake of you. Jesus was foreordained for our sakes. Vance sings a song I absolutely love. Maybe he's going to sing it sometime soon since we're getting to Easter time. It's, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And I think there's absolute truth in that. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. But you know what the scripture is really teaching us? Before I was spoken into creation, before God breathed life into humanity, I was on his mind. You. He was made manifest, which means he was revealed. He was done this for you. I know the scripture says also last times, and we can make a whole separate message on that phrase, the last times. But in short, from the moment that Jesus showed up on the scene, we entered into what are known as the last times or end times. From the moment he was born in Bethlehem to the moment he comes his second time, we are in the end times. We are always to be living with this expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment. Jesus could come back today. He could come back later this afternoon. He could come back next week. We just do not know. And with that is the implication that we should not delay in giving our life to Him as Savior and Lord. Because the moment He comes back, our chances to be saved are completely over. It only adds to the importance of our need to emphasize that this gift, this foreordainment of Jesus Christ was given for our salvation right now. Do not delay. You must be born again. I pray that this does give you a word of hope. I pray, knowing that you didn't mess up God's plan, but that Jesus was his plan from the get-go, and he did this for you as a word of hope. When times get tough, when life has you down, if nothing else gives you hope, 
This should give you hope. God planned to save you through Jesus Christ from the very beginning. Why? Because he loves you. The, the title of this sermon was almost called Redeeming Love. He loves you so much, his plan for the beginning was to redeem you, to buy you back, to purchase you from sin. We must remember that this was a word of hope for the Jewish and Gentile believers who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter is trying to bring a little bit of light into their darkness. And so here's one final implication of this. If their hope was strengthened by the knowledge of God's foreordainment of Jesus Christ before the foundations of the world, our hope should be strengthened by this knowledge of what God planned for you and me. And if it is not, then we must ask the difficult question, what is our hope in? What is our hope being put in? The second word of hope here in this scripture comes from verse 21, and it's simply this, your belief in God. Why is that a word of hope? The fact that you believe in God is implying that you have faith in Jesus Christ. You can't believe in God without faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus kind of talks about this in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Your belief, not your acknowledgement, not your knowledge of God's existence, but your belief in Him is confirmation of your faith in Jesus Christ. So what Peter says in verse 21 is that this foreordainment of Jesus Christ was done for our faith right now, here in 2018, but also our faith in the future. That's how we define hope. Hope is our faith in the future. And we can have this faith in God because of Jesus Christ. Our faith is made sure through Him. Why? Two reasons that Peter gives us in verse 21. Number one is this. He raised Him from the dead. If you believe that God raised him from the dead, that should give you hope. Because you can't believe that on your own. That is proof that the Holy Spirit is moving in you. Now think about that for a second. If you believe that Jesus died and literally rose from the grave, it is proof the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. Because you can't believe that on your own. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, either you're crazy or that's crazy. Or it's true. I'm going with it's true. God raised Jesus from the dead. And not only does it confirm that the Holy Spirit is speaking in us and working in us, but it also confirms the, the victory that Christ had over death and the grave, and it confirms that Jesus was not just a prophet or a good man, but that he was the promised Messiah. The second thing he says in here, the reason that this is confirmed in us is that God raised him, gave him glory. When Jesus was ascended into the heavens, 40 days after being resurrected from the tomb, God raised him to the right hand, to sit at his right hand, where he intercedes, he prays for us day and night. And in that act, God the Father glorifies God the Son. And if you believe that, if you believe that Jesus is in heaven, he's just waiting for a word from God the Father to come back for us, that second return, or that second coming back, that second coming of Jesus Christ, that's proof that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Essentially, this is what 
The Bible says, Romans 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that He is God, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. You cannot be saved and not confess that and believe that. It's absolutely impossible. And if you confess that and you believe that, it is confirmation that you have a true salvation in God. You want further proof of that? I, I, you know, listen, I can't help but to think of this moment when Jesus was sitting around with his disciples. And he's asking them, who are the people saying that I am? And then he asks him, who do you say that I am? And it's, it's kind of like, I, I feel like it's one of these classroom moments where nobody knows the right answer, just throwing out stuff. Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say this, some say that, you know, and they're just... They're all just saying the wrong thing. And finally, this one disciple speaks up. You know who it is? The guy who wrote this letter, Peter. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you know what Jesus says? He says, wow, you've done some real good book learning. No, that's not what Jesus says. You've been listening. No, that's not what Jesus says. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 7, blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, Peter, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, you didn't learn this on your own, and nobody taught this to you. What does he say? My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. If you believe in your heart who Jesus is, it is confirmation that God is working in you, and you believe in God, and you have a relationship with Him. That should give you hope. So when life has got you down, when tur uh, turmoil is coming your way, when you are troubled, when you're tempted and tried, remember this fact of your faith. If you rely on the atonement of Jesus Christ, be filled with hope. It means you are a believer and you have been reconciled to God the Father forever and ever and ever. I might be tried, I might be tempted, I might be troubled, but I have faith in God and that's all I need. I hope that is a word of hope to you. It's a word of hope to me. Number three, our salvation will endure forever and ever and ever and ever. Verses 23 through 25, here's what Peter talks about. He talks about this incorruptible seed through the word of God. And then he has this beautiful scripture that he, he, uh, he quotes from Isaiah. He says, all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man and as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You know, we can really picture that this time of year, can't we? The flowers are starting to bloom. Although, I tell people all the time, you need to come to Southeast Texas, there is something always blooming here. It just seems like there's always some flowers. But this time of year, it's the, man, this is the pretty time of year, right? The azaleas have got buds on them. The wisteria are starting to come out. I mean, it is just, the dogwoods are not far behind, are they? It is just absolutely beautiful. But we know the truth of the scripture, that even though those trees and those shrubs and those plants will keep on being green, those beautiful flowers are going to fade, they're going to fall off, and all we'll be left with is the memory of their beauty. That's why we have to put these uh, awesome silk flowers up here, right? Because we want to enjoy them for many, many weeks and not see them fade and wilt and go away. What Peter is saying is, is the word of the Lord will not do that. It will not fade. It will not fade away. It is an incorruptible, unfadable seed of God. And because of that, because your salvation is based on the word of God, your salvation will endure forever. Now, this really implies two very important points for us. 
real quickly. First one is this. If our salvation is to be based on the Word of God, and the Word of God endures forever, then the written Word of God is a must to our faith. We live in a day at a time, not where non-believers are questioning the validity of God's Word, where, where believers are questioning the validity of God's Word. And not just any Christian believers, but even our fellow Southern Baptists are questioning the validity of God's Word. Does it really say that? They might say. Are they questioning this part or that part? Some of us want to question its, uh, its, its sincerity. We want to question its literality. We want to question, oh, does it really call that a sin or this a sin? I'm so glad to be a part of a church and a part of a state convention and a national convention that as a whole makes the statement, we believe that this is the inerrant, true word of God. And so therefore, we see it as authoritative and we see it as a necessary part, necessary part of our lives. We base our faith on this, and we must. The second implication is this, Jesus, the Word of God, is a must to our faith. If my salvation is as only as sure as the foundation is built upon, then I must build it upon the only saving foundation, the rock, who is Jesus Christ, who is the everlasting Word, which will never fade away it will never die off. It will never fall off the stem and go away. Jesus is forever and ever. We're living in a really sad time. We're living in a post-Billy Graham time. For 60 years, this man has pointed us to Jesus, calling the lost to salvation, not by eloquent speeches, but by simply preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. I'm so sad to see him gone, but the gospel is not gone. The word of God is not gone. And the way of salvation that he called us to, that called men and women all over this world to, is not gone. It is still here today. Let us take up the mantle that Billy Graham has left, calling the lost to salvation. Our salvation stands above and beyond time. It was planned before time. It was planned before time even existed because time didn't exist until the sun was created and made for the earth to revolve around it and the moon and all that. That's what time is really based on. God stands above time. His way of salvation stands above time. Our salvation stands before, above and before time and after time. Our salvation will endure forever. Well, So now what? Well, What do we do? How do we respond to these words of hope? You notice I left out verse 22. I did that on purpose because I see that as being our resolution, our response to these words of hope. We have been given a mighty word about our salvation once again. And this is not just so that we can sit in silence, so that we can sit in our comfortableness, sit on our blessed assurance, if you will. This great hope deserves a great response from us. Such great redeeming love deserves great love. And this is exactly what Peter calls us to. The phrase in verse 22 is, love one another. That we love one another. In this section of scripture, verses 20 through 25, this is the only imperative second person verb. Perhaps you'll remember in the Greek language, a second, imperative, a second person imperative verb is a verb that basically says this, this is what you need to do. This is what you ought to be doing. Hey, 
do this. You do this. That's the meaning behind this. And so we need to understand our calling because of this hope that we've been given is a calling to love, not ourselves, love one another. Do you know how important this command is? It appears throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a call that we love one another. It is the second most important command, second only to the command that we love God with all that we are. And it's so easy for us to just kind of spout that right off the tongue, to let it roll off. Oh, let us love one another. So Peter gives us some direction in this scripture. He tells us exactly how we are to love one another. And very briefly, I want to just sum this up for you in just three points. How are we to love one another? The first thing he says is sincerely. He uses the word sincerely. The Greek word here is on apokriton, which translates without hypocrisy. How are we to love one another? Without hypocrisy. Now, the word hypocrite was real common in the German, in the, in the, not in the German, but in the Greek culture. And it was a word used for acting. A hypocrite was an actor, someone who put on a mask and acted from their normal, true character. And what Peter is telling us is we don't need to act our love, we need to have a love. And so hypocritical love wears the facade of concern, yet there is no action or follow through on that love. A sincere love is not an act. A sincere love is not a facade. A sincere love does not take the mask off when things are not convenient. But it said a sincere love, a love without hypocrisy, loves from the heart because Jesus hath put his love in our heart, and so therefore, from the deep recesses of God being in us, through our salvation in Jesus Christ, we are able to love one another. I love because he first loved me. Peter next says that we are to love one another fervently. Love one another fervently. This word is used a few times in the New Testament. It is the word ektenos. And it refers to strenuous or stretching or reaching out. And it's, like I said, it's used a few different places in the New Testament, but in particular, where I feel the fit and connection of what God is trying to tell us here in Peter is his expectation of how we are to love one another. And it says this in Luke chapter 2, verses 44, And being in agony, he, talking about Jesus Christ, prayed more ectanos, fervently. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The intensity, the fervent prayers of Jesus caused him to have a great strain of love for us at that moment in the garden. Let me ask you, is your love for your fellow man, your fellow believers in Jesus Christ, is it this intense? Do you hurt with them? Do you mourn with them? Are you filled with grief when they are filled with grief? Do you agonize over what they agonize? Or do you just love them as easily as you can and try to keep your life from their life? Do you only love in a way that fits your lifestyle? Do you love others so fervently that you're driven to do whatever you can, though, including die on a cross? 
That's the fervent love Christ had for us. Not loving fervently is why we get offended easily. Did you hear that? When we don't love fervently, we get offended easily at the drop of a hat. And we don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. Fervent love doesn't get offended. Fervent love pushes on through. Listen, I, I, get, I try to make a lot of visits throughout the week. Sometimes when I go into houses, this is what I hear. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen you. I'm doing the best I can. But you know what? I'm going to go back and visit that person. You know why? Because I love them. And I'm not offended by that. I know they're just saying that because they miss me. And they love me. At least I hope that that's the case. I want to encourage you to push on through any offense you might be feeling at what people might say to you and love them fervently anyway. Not loving fervently is why we are unwilling to forgive one another. Not loving fervently keeps us from bearing with one another in our weaknesses. Not loving fervently is why churches split over the most asinine issues. And then the lost look at us and say, what difference did Jesus and his salvation make in your life? Like I said, this word fervently can also be communicated to mean stretching, to stretching out, to reaching out. Fervent love causes us to stretch ourselves for one another, going beyond the call of what is expected by some and to the point of sweating drops of blood. Thinking about the first century church, when someone had a need, they would sell property and give the profit to the church so they could help that person in need. That's stretching out, isn't it? Finally, I'm running late, with a pure heart. That we are to love with a pure heart. And that sounds simple enough. It's how the verse starts. He says, having been purified. You see, our faith in Christ purifies us. And so really, our love is birthed out of the righteous state of our hearts, which are their state because of Christ's effect on our lives. We have been made pure because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we love with a pure heart. And pure hearts are led by pure motives. And so to love with a pure heart means that we love each other with a pure motive. What does that mean? It means that I love you without seeking my own personal gain. It means that I'm loving you without trying to manipulate you into something. It means I'm loving you without causing any drama in our lives. It's always interesting to me, the same people always seem to have drama no matter what relationship they're talking about. At some point, it seems like they might say, what's the common denominator in these relationships? Hmm, it's me. But instead, a manipulator blames everyone else for the problem. That is not loving with a pure heart. That's loving with a self-seeking motive and mission. Here's a tip. Love without seeking personal gain. But instead, love for their gain. Love in such a way that you want them to be propelled in their relationship with Christ, that you want to see them propel in life. If we would all love with that motivation, wow, how far would we go? How far would we go for the glory of Jesus Christ? Have you ever heard that statement that he's so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good? You ever heard that? They're so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. You know, I don't really think that's a problem. Because apathy is not of heaven. Not loving as Christ loved us is not of 
heaven. Lack of desire to invest in others is not of heaven. That's of the world. And so I think sometimes what the problem is, is that we are too worldly minded to be of heavenly good. That is the kingdom of heaven. And here's the kicker. We have this great word of hope that points us to the great gift of salvation that was planned before the foundations of the world for the simple purpose that we know the love of God He has for us, that we can then be propelled to love each other in that same way. Men, it's time for us to raise up and love one another. Now, this doesn't mean we have to sit around the fire and sing kumbaya and have warm fuzzies for each other. But it does mean that we just love each other and we, uh, we encourage each other and we call each other when we see uh, someone missing. Ladies, loving one another, I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to go share the latest gossip. But you know, have you ever thought about pouring your life into the next generation? Calling up one of these new mothers that are in our community of faith and not telling them how to raise their children, but instead just offering to buy them a cup of coffee or, or have lunch with them or something like that. You know, if you're a seasoned mom, these new moms could use some help. They could sure use some love as they go through so many different issues. I'm just trying to give you a little application of what it looks like for us to love one another without self-seeking motives. I want to encourage you, church, to love one another. It's really, literally, at some point, maybe the only thing we have in this world is the love we have for each other that comes from our love from above. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that we have this word of hope, that before the foundations of the world, you had already set in motion this plan of salvation. Lord, we thank you for this word of hope, that if I believe in you, then I can be encouraged and have hope that my belief is secure and safe and it will endure for all time. Lord, I pray that we would be inspired by this great redeeming love that you have poured down from the foundations of the world for us, for you, for, I mean, for me, and for all of us in this place, and that it would inspire us to love each other without selfishness, without, without uh, uh, hypocrisy. Father, I pray for those that are in this place this morning, and I just pray that, uh, that your Holy Spirit would move in us, would speak to us. Uh, Lord, that we would have a resolve to make a difference because of your word, because of your great love for us. I pray, Lord, that we would respond obediently during this time of singing. However, you want us to respond, whether it be in prayer, uh, Lord, whether it be coming forward and talking about what it means to be born again. Lord, we don't want anyone to leave this place without that born-again love relationship that you have given us the opportunity to have. God, it's in your name I pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.